The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. In the following chapter, the eighth chapter, we shall see that it is the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to overcome the force of sin's thrust. But in the seventh chapter, there is no mention of the Holy Spirit. We know from all the rest of the New Testament that God has given to us His Holy Spirit to be not only our guide and comforter, but the one who is to keep our eyes turned to Christ and our minds aware of our union with Him in His resurrection in order that we may know the triumph of that resurrection. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Sin and the Law. Your kitchen may look spotless after you've cleaned it, but if you take a flashlight and look in every corner and under all your appliances, you may still find dirt, grime, and perhaps even a few bugs. People may think they are generally good by nature, but the law of God searches the heart of man and exposes the filth and sin in all of us. How can we achieve victory over the sin and iniquity in our hearts? Let's find out as today we turn to Romans chapter 7, and we're looking at verses 7 and 8. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Sin and the Law. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for all thy grace and faithfulness and desire that in this hour thou shalt speak to us with thy living word, which can feed us and cause us to grow spiritually, to know thee better and to love thee more. Bless each listening heart, and bring thy true church into a place of greater spiritual power, that we may witness to this world which crucified Christ, and which hastens to its doom. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying in the seventh chapter of Romans and come to the seventh and eighth verses. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? God forbid. Yet I should not have known sin except through the law. I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing occasion through the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, Sin is dead. We now begin the study of one of the most great and terrible passages in the Bible. It has held the attention of almost every Bible student, for it depicts a struggle which every believer has known within his own body. 
and the desperation of that struggle brings a great desire to be free from it. We must remember the background of the man who wrote this. Paul had been Saul of Tarsus before he became a Christian, and he had been a Jew under the law. He had been living with that law, knowing nothing of the gospel. But now that he had come to know the gospel, he realized that when Christ died, God counted Saul of Tarsus as having died with Christ. Paul was now free because of his new relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Just as a man who has been found not guilty by a jury is discharged from the jurisdiction of an earthly court so that it has no more dominion over him, so the one who had been under the law of Moses was now discharged from that law forever. Now, we in the 20th century, we who are Gentiles, for the majority of born-again ones are from a Gentile background, we must realize two things about this passage. First, all human beings were of the same stock and stem, and there was no distinction till God reached down and called Abraham, saving him by grace, before there was any law. Now, in order to lay the groundwork for the redemption which should be provided by Christ, God brought the nation of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt and to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he publicly placed Israel under that law with the death penalty involved for breaking it. Now, at Mount Calvary, God has just as publicly taken those believers out from under that law and declared that they are discharged from any jeopardy which might be occasioned by the claims of that law. Second, we Gentiles must remember that we were never under the Jewish law. In spite of all ecclesiastical efforts that have been made through centuries to bring us under its bondage, Gentiles never were under the Ten Commandments or under any of the Jewish law. Whatever we have of interpretation or tradition that is contrary to this great fact, must be repudiated with great firmness. The attempt to say that the church, either corporately or in its individual members, is subject to the law is a false doctrine which becomes a colossal presumption in the light of the revealed word of God. The law has had its purpose, but its purpose does not concern the child of God. The man who has been born again and who wishes to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the man who desires to enter into a life of real holiness and know the triumph over daily sins, should thank God profoundly for the seventh chapter of Romans. I know that this is not the customary attitude that is taken toward this section of the scriptures. There are many who speak of the horror of the struggle of Romans 7, but there is something much greater than struggle in this chapter. There is victory. There is triumph. Moreover, there is the setting forth of the divine principles by which the prevailing winds in the life of the believer can blow to us from God and be winds of victory. We have seen that the coming of the law brought the consciousness of sin and like a catalyst hastened the reaction of sin in those that were under it. Well then, is the law sin? Or is the law sinful? Perish the thought. It's strange that the enemies of grace should think such foolish thoughts. Or 
is it strange? The carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit, neither can he know them. They are spiritually discerned. Therefore, it is not to be wondered at that wicked men, perhaps they may not be morally wicked, but they are wicked because they cling to self instead of to grace. Perhaps I say it is not to be wondered at that wicked men refuse to accept that which lays them in the dust and which denies the effectiveness of any of the labors of their flesh. They would rather cling to a system that will allow them self-effort and the sense of achieving something, even if their achievement is a star's distance from that which righteousness must demand of the sinner. They would rather, I say, cling to such a system than to reject that system and stand in utter bankruptcy before sheer grace. We can abandon the opinions of the unsaved and the opinions of the carnal who carry over their unsaved opinions into the new life that is Christ. We must understand that this seventh chapter of Romans is not concerned in any wise with salvation. This is the story of something in the life of a born-again believer in Christ. The subject that lies before us has to do not with sin, but with sins. The question is one of deliverance from the power of sin and not of salvation from the penalty of sin. That salvation from the penalty of sin has been dealt with in the third, fourth, and fifth chapters of the epistle. Here we are no longer occupied with the doctrine of justification. We are concerned with sanctification, though the word has not yet been seen in the narrative. Furthermore, the narrative is not telling of forgiveness of sins that are committed, but rather of the force of indwelling sin and how to keep it from breaking forth. If we consider sin as a great power, like a vast lake restrained behind a great dam, our paragraph is not concerned with any seepage of water that trickles through the interstices, but rather with the great pressure of the dammed up flow and how to keep it from breaking forth in the life. In the early part of my ministry, I was guilty of assigning this portion of the scripture to the present day only, and to think of it as an example of the conflict through which every Christian continuously goes today in the battle between the flesh and the spirit. I do not think that such an interpretation can be made to fit the facts here. This is Paul writing about his own early experiences. It is historical rather than contemporary. He is telling us of his mental processes in the days just after the road to Damascus. He had been brought up in a very religious family. He was circumcised the eighth day and was of the stock of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of even the straightest or the narrowest sect. As to his zeal, he killed anyone who did not conform to the rigid framework of the Mosaic law. And so far as outward character was concerned, he is able to write that touching the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. Now, some may wish to argue that Paul was unregenerate during the days before the experience on the road to Damascus. But a full reading of all the word of God must bring us to the inevitable conclusion that he himself states 
on two different occasions, namely that he was saved from his mother's womb, even as he tells Timothy and as he writes to the Galatians. What happened to Saul on the road to Damascus was the same thing that happened to other disciples in the experiences of the resurrection and of Pentecost. He, like them, had been brought up under the covenant of the law. He was a member of one of the tribes of Israel. And the priest of his nation on the Day of Atonement offered up a sacrifice on his behalf. His sin was atoned for in the death of the first animal and then placed on the head of the scapegoat and led off into the wilderness on that great Day of the Atonement. But that did not hinder the fact that the conflict that went on in the body of his flesh was stilled by all the ceremonial practices of that law. A conflict which never ended in triumph under the law. It was only after he was brought into the body of Christ on the road to Damascus that the great conflict developed fully and then the principles of victory became available. There are some Christians today, in fact there are many, who go through the same struggle that is described here. When I say that Paul is not describing true Christian experience in this chapter, I am not saying that he is not describing the experience of many true Christians. But while such an experience was necessarily the condition of a man before the time of Christ, even though related to God in the covenant of Moses, it is not the necessary experience of a Christian today. Paul may have known such an experience for some time after the Damascus Road, but he learned of his true position in Christ and entered into that position and its triumphs. The hidden recesses of the human soul are dark and tortuous. An unregenerate man can never know them. They are to be discerned only by the work of God. The law is a probe which enters into the inner recesses to reveal the true nature of Adam's being which is in us. Several years ago, I learned from a member of my church who was an outstanding medical professor of a new process which has been devised to study the heart. A slender, hollow, plastic tube was introduced into the antecubital vein in the inner side of the elbow and skillfully worked up the vein until it passed over the shoulder and down into the heart. A cloudy chemical could be released which would show the fluoroscopist the nature of the flow of blood within the heart, and by maneuvering the catheter through the ventricles, a blood sample could be secured from within the lungs. It was this work which preceded the operations which have cured so many of those who were called blue babies. It interested me greatly that the verses in the scripture which speak of the Lord as trying the heart are rendered in the great French translations as catheterizing the heart, and this long before the modern invention. In our text, Paul is really telling us that the instrument which the Lord used for this delicate work was the law which he gave through Moses. It was when the Lord forbade something to men who were totally incapable of abstaining from that thing that they became aware of their inward sinfulness and their bondage to sin and their helplessness to overcome it in their own power. Thus, by the law is the knowledge of sin. For I should not have known what it is to covet, our text continues, if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. In the King James Version we read, For I had not known lust. And if we retain this reading, we're capable of missing the point. For the word lust in the English language has changed its meaning in the past century, 
so that in our day it is used almost exclusively of the lust of sex. But as late as 70 years ago, it was used by Tennyson in the sense of the pleasures of a garden of roses and contained the meaning of all desire, both pleasant and evil. The word that is used in the Greek is definitely used in a bad sense only in this place. And the revisers have done well to change the word to covet or evil desire. Before the law came, most individuals of the human race wanted things that were possessed by others, and they did not know that such a wanting was a mark of the sinfulness of the human heart. But when God spoke through Moses and said, Thou shalt not covet, then men knew that such lusting was wrong. Men who had sat longing for the breadth of another man's house were told that they were not to covet another man's house. Men who had desired the beauty of another man's wife were told that they were not to covet another man's wife. Men who had desired the possessions of another man, his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or his ass, or anything else that he possessed, were told that they were not to covet these possessions. Immediately their hearts were stirred to conflict. Paul had realized this conflict to the full. He knew, of course, that the law said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. When he found himself desiring other things, he realized through the commandment, that such desire was sin. Was it not the fact that Lucifer turned his eyes away from the Lord Jehovah and desired something other than the Creator, which was the origin of all sin in the universe? When that brightest of all the angel hosts said, I will ascend into heaven, he had desired something for himself, and in that instant had become the devil. The law made all this clear in the mind of Paul and showed him that his own nature was akin to that of Satan. Furthermore, the single spark fanned into a blaze. The next verse shows that what happened was something such as the following. Paul wanted some object, perhaps innocent in itself, but definitely he wanted it for himself. When the law became known with its exclusive declaration, thou shalt not covet, his nature immediately was aroused into the deepest rebellion. The chain reaction of covetousness was set in motion by the first coming of the law which imposed the first barrier upon the will of the individual. It was the inwardness of the sinful nature which, seizing occasion through the coming of the commandment, wrought in him all manner of covetousness. Until the law came, that sinful desire had been present manifesting itself on separate occasions. But when the law came, the rebellion became open. In addition to desire, there was the inward proclamation that the desire should be fulfilled at all costs. And not only was this desire limited to the things mentioned in the last commandment, but like a brush fire, the desire burned through all of the commandments, showing that every part of life and being was sinful in itself. There is an illustration which is so obvious that it has occurred to more than one Bible teacher. I used it in one of my very first radio messages years ago and have since found it in a book by another man. As I set it forth at that time, it was as follows. Back in the early days of automobiles, there were no laws against speed. A man who had learned the joys of fast driving 
bought one of the fastest cars available in those days and took it out on the roads, driving as fast as road conditions allowed. He crossed the border into another state and was confronted by a large road sign saying that laws against speed had been enacted in that state and that no car could travel more than 35 miles per hour. Every mile or so, he found an announcement of the speed limit. That law angered him fiercely, and he broke it at every opportunity. After a few miles, he was confronted by another sign, reaffirming the speed limit and announcing that the road was patrolled and that the law would be strictly enforced. And now his whole being was filled with resentment. The law had not created his desire for speed. That had existed long before the law was enacted. But the law had made him conscious of his fierce desire to speed. And it also made him conscious of his rebellion against the restraining demand of the law. Each succeeding sign that named the speed limit brought the same swift rebellion. His foot moved from the accelerator to brake and from brake to accelerator as his mind went from desire for speed to a fear of arrest. The coming of the law brought out both the desire to have his own way and the conflict with authority that would seek to restrain him. Now, this is the idea that is set forth by Paul in our passage. Let me apply this to ourselves practically. The Lord, in this section of the epistle, is setting forth truth that will enable us to overcome sin. It is our sanctification which is in view in this section of the epistle. If we are to live in triumph with righteousness reigning through Christ, we must pass through the experience that is set forth here in order to be brought to God's own method for victory over sin's thrust from within us. Sin is within, sleeping. Its sleep is such that it is said to be dead. It shows no signs of life. Our professors of ethics and of anthropology will tell us that it is a universal natural desire for all men to wish to possess things that they do not have, and that surely there is no sin in wanting these things. There are those who hold to anti-Christian philosophies whose hatred burns fiercely against Christianity because it contains restrictions on these desires. They attempt to teach that different civilizations produce different standards of right and wrong, and that we have no right to impose our Christian standards on other people. But it is God who has given the law, and he has given it to Israel through Moses and reaffirmed it in the Sermon on the Mount through Jesus Christ in such a way as to bring the knowledge of sin to all men. And with the coming of the law, there comes the enmity of the carnal heart against the God of holiness. And there comes the sense of total impotence to keep that law. This is what God wants to produce in the hearts of men. For the unsaved man must be brought to the place where he sees his struggles unavailing and his works as useless. Then only will he turn to Christ as personal savior from sin. And then to the one who is glorying in salvation and the knowledge of sins forgiven, there comes once more the knowledge of the law which arouses all of the evil desires of the Adamic nature. And we are brought face to face with the fact that there is no victory for us through our own strength. It is then and then only that we can turn to the Lord for the complete revelation of his plan in grace, 
to bring us through to the place of reigning by joining us to Christ in his death and resurrection and maintaining us in that union with him through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this will become more evident as we proceed further in our study. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall bless the word to each heart. Thou alone knowest the needs today. And we ask thee that the reminder of the law shall cause unregenerate men to see their own impotence, that they may turn to Christ and find him as Savior and give them no peace until they come to that rest in Christ. And upon all thy believing own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And a new sense of the availability of thy divine power to do what the flesh cannot do. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power. Now, till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. The law of God reveals his absolute holiness and the utter sinfulness of humanity. But the Bible declares the grace of God for sinners and sets forth principles by which we may live in righteousness. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Sin and the Law. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Sin and the Law, or simply request message number R7-11. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Why and How to Study the Bible. Christians have many excuses for why their Bibles never find their way off the bookshelf. I don't have enough time. Scripture is too hard to understand. I just don't know where to begin. This free booklet explains why Bible study is so important and how to dig into the Scriptures in a way that will make them come alive. You can enjoy a lifetime of fruitful study and application of God's Word. Ask for your free copy of Why and How to Study the Bible when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support or further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call us toll-free. 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org.
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.